The book of Genesis, the very word Genesis means beginning. The book of Genesis tells the beginning of the story of what we know about God, what he has revealed about himself. It isn't the story of how God began because he doesn't have a beginning or an end. No, Jesus, uh, Genesis is the story of our beginning. And by our, I mean all of creation, us humans to be sure, but the animal kingdom too, birds, fish, Trees, grass, mountains, the seas, the stars, and planets, all living things. The Jesus Storybook Bible, which is what Olivia was reading from, summed it up so beautifully. But even still, creation is unfathomable, indescribable, even more so, the Creator. About us humans, pastor and author R. Kent Hughes who I'll refer to quite a bit, he said, Genesis is eloquent. We are at the same time truly wonderful and truly awful. The bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness, which we will get to. In fact, we have a lot, of, a lot to cover, some 1,600 years, depending on how you interpret the account of creation, which we won't get into the details concerning. There are many views that are held and have been held by Christians over the centuries. Views about Earth's beginning are just about as debatable as how Earth will end, or rather be transformed. So if you were hoping I would explain the dinosaurs today, that is not going to happen, I'm sorry. We'll look at just one reptile. I've divided my sermon into three parts. The outline is in uh, your bulletin. Feel free to follow along. We'll hit the first, the good, then we'll, then we'll really focus on the second, the bad, and we'll just touch on the third, and by the way, I realize gooder isn't a word, but I'm employing poetic license here. Uh, before we jump in, let's pray along the lines that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. Let's pray. Dear God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, give us spiritual wisdom and revelation so that we might grow in the knowledge of God. Flood our hearts with light so we can understand the confident hope you've given to us who are called to be your holy people. God, and I also pray that you'd help us to grasp the immeasurable greatness of your power at work within us and around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so turn to Genesis 1. We're not going to read the entire text because uh, uh, we just heard it. And hopefully you read it beforehand. That's the idea anyway. You can find next week's reading assignment in your bulletin. It's hidden in there somewhere. Or you could, you could see all the assignments on our website. And that reminds me, uh, that we're referring to chapter one here of the story. If you haven't gotten this, you can get it out in the gathering area for $75. Oh, sorry. That's, sorry, $750. Man, that's a good deal. So go get it. You like how I did that? That was, I could have been a salesperson. So, oh. That could have been dangerous. So God creates all these various layers, to use Pastor Dan's illustration from last week. God creates this perfect backdrop, and then he caps his creation project with humans. So let's look, verse 26. I'm reading for New Living Translation. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
male and female, he created them. Created in the image of God. What does this mean? There's so much that I don't have time to get into, so let me just touch on it. The the thing is that we'll look at in a moment. Our our original righteousness, our, our goodness, our innocence and holiness were destroyed in the fall, but not God's image. His image remains stamped on us. Look around this room. Everyone in here has been created by God in his image. Same with every person outside these walls. Keep that in mind. But what does that even mean? Well, one commentary says there is a a vast dignity attached to being made in God's image, though marred by the fall. This, among other things, I don't have time to get into. This helps us to realize how immense the spiritual potential of humanity is. We see later in the New Testament that we are to become like Christ. Through the work of God's Spirit, we take on the characteristics and the traits of Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, as the Apostle Paul explains in Colossians, which says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. It is our destiny as believers, as followers of Jesus, to become like Jesus. If you struggle to see this, if you can't imagine what you look like redeemed, remade, remember that He, the one who formed the universe, can restore your broken life. As Hughes wrote, he who filled the earth with light, the seas with fish, the air with birds, and the land with its denizens specializes in giving his righteousness to sinful, vacuous humanity. He has only to say the word and it is done. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We haven't even fallen yet. Reading through the end of chapter one and two, we see that God rested from his work and we could have an entire series on what the Sabbath is and, it, and what it isn't and how we are to observe it, if, if we are at all. I, I can't get into that, but let me echo St. Augustine who said, Our hearts are restless till they find rest in God. Apart from God, all life is striving. We will remain restless regardless of what we manage to get in this world, whether, whether things, riches, or relationships Hebrews 4 speaks of the rest that is promised for all who believe in Christ. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at Eden. Chapter 2 of Genesis is sort of a different look at the creation account, more in-depth, you might say. Let's pick it up at verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Moses wasn't the most descriptive writer. He he was no Charlotte Bronte, say. But we can only imagine then this Eden in the east, It was a paradise, the garden of the Lord it is later referred to. Eden was paradise because of God's presence. The very word Eden means delight, suggesting the garden was luxurious. 
The trees, as we saw, were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. But again, it was God's presence. I think of the house that we're going to be moving to uh, pretty soon. We, we finally found a place, and it's a testament to God's favor and grace that we could even think to live there. This house has these beautiful trees, including two peach trees. So I'm already thinking of cobbler and uh, uh, pie and that kind of stuff. I'm thinking of a hammock and trying to capture both day seven rest and Eden all at once. I suppose, uh, anyway, Hughes writes, Adam lacked nothing. He was made in the image of God. God had kissed life into him. He was perfect. He was the human sovereign of creation. He had the blessing of God and the unparalleled presence of God. And it gets even better because Eve hasn't even been formally introduced yet. So why don't we skip right to her? Verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord said, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone I will make a helper who is just right for him. It's not good for the man to be alone. Everything has been good to this point, but here God says of Adam's aloneness, his solitude, that it is not good. God acknowledged Adam's need for a companion, for a partner, before Adam would even recognize it. Here's another aspect of being made in God's image. and we, <laughs> There's a lot here. But we were made for community. We were made to live in relation to others. As we'll see, this will get messed up in the fall. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. By the way, I think this is why most men really love barbecue ribs. It's really just a search for something missing, I think. You may even remember Fred Flintstone, remember, wanted ribs. So this goes way, way back. Verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. So God presents Eve to Adam, and, and, and conversely, Adam to Eve, and there's this Etta James moment. You know, there's, at last my love has come along, my lonely nights are over, and life is like a song. But seriously, here, as we looked at in our marriage series last month, uh, here is the very essence of marriage. Look at verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. They were naked without shame. They were spiritually naked before God and before each other. God came first in their love and in their thought. And as C.S. Lewis wrote, without painful effort. Hughes continues, he says, There was no need for disciplined devotion. All of life was devotion. Loving God was as natural as breathing and as effortless. Domestically, they were naked with one another. Clothing had never occurred to them. There was nothing to hide or protect. The gravitational pull of self did not exist. Neither one was the center of his or her own life. God and each other were their centers. That sounds like paradise, doesn't it? Absolutely nothing between you and anyone else. No secrets, no lies, no envy, no pride, no bitterness. It would have been paradise for sure. Sadly, however, it is, of course, short-lived. 
I don't want to move on to chapter 3. I want to stay here. I want to live here. I don't want to leave Eden's elation. But we must move on. We must continue the story. So come with me to where this all unravels. Before we turn to chapter 3, we must first note that God's word to this point was responsible, Hughes points out. God's word was responsible for everything Adam and Eve enjoyed. Day and night, sun and moon, the blue sky, the garden, the flowers, the bird songs, all the adoring creatures. All of this came from God's word, which Satan will attack. Let's look. Chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Did God really say? Satan is so subtle in his approach to Eve. In his serpent cloak, Satan doesn't overtly deny God's word. This wouldn't have worked. Instead, he introduces the idea that God's word is subject to our judgment. Did God really say? Also notice something we skipped over earlier, the, the command itself. Well, Since Satan is challenging it, we should see what God really said. Verse 16 of chapter 2. But the Lord God warned him, speaking of Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. God generously commanded, you may freely eat, whereas Satan now says, did God really say you must not eat? These statements are quite different, my friends. In his crafty rewording, Satan distorts God's word. He, he perverts God's generosity, even suggesting stinginess on God's part. Again, Satan's question is so subtle, and Eve didn't catch on. It was just an innocent question, but a seed of doubt is planted. Verse 2, chapter 3. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Just as the serpent did, though seemingly not as uh, harmfully, Eve proceeds to make her own revisions to God's word. She, she does three things. She's, she diminishes God's word and then she adds to it and then she finally softens it. First, she diminishes. Remember, God said you may eat the fruit of every tree, but Eve leaves out the every part, simply saying we may eat fruit from the trees. She focuses instead on the one tree among the forest of trees. She focuses on the one tree they couldn't eat from. She minimizes God's provision. And as Hugh says, she was in tacit agreement with the serpent. You can sense a, a shift in her heart, can't you? The shift is revealed by her addition to God's word. Look again at verse 3. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. God never said they couldn't touch it. 
only that they couldn't eat its fruit. For all we know, God would have been fine with their building a tree house in the middle of the tree. That probably wouldn't have been a, a good idea, though, to dwell among constant temptation, but Eve exaggerates God's strictness. Her comment seems to suggest that God is so harsh, he is so cruel, that an accidental slip would bring instant death, as though there was some kind of force field surrounding the tree. Well, finally, Eve softens God's word when she says, if you do, you will die. Now, this might seem illogical, but hear me out. See, Eve paradoxically softens God's word, where before she exaggerated it, she softens God's word by leaving out the sure in God's original statement, which was, you are sure to die. She simply says, you will die. Eve removed the certainty of death, didn't she? Now, it's just a possibility in her mind, not a foregone conclusion. Now, it's plausible that God may be withholding the truth. Her revisionist approach, Hugh says, her revisionist approach to the holy word of God put her in harm's way, and it likewise does so today for us. Let's see how Eve's revisions emboldened the snake. I'm going to switch over to the New International Version momentarily. The, the New Living Translation abbreviates verse 4 with a contraction, and it just it leaves it lacking. So, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not certainly die, the serpent sharply contradicts. In fact, the Hebrew word places the word for not at the beginning. Not you will certainly die. Not you will certainly die, which kind of sounds like, like Yoda, but you get the point. Interestingly, Satan uses the word surely or certainly where Eve did not. How Satan knows God's word. He is artful in his distortions of God's word. It's not merely possible that you will not die. It is certain, Satan is saying, that you will not die. Hughes says, the pathology of this dialogue of dissent is so clear. Satan offers a question based on the perversion of God's word. Eve, then she begins to question it herself, as is evidenced by her revisions of God's word. And then Satan is free to declare God's word as wrong. At the serpent's statement, at the serpent's statement Eve should have recoiled in horror. Yet she remains entranced. Think of Mowgli before Ka in the Jungle Book. Eve is transfixed. She is flushed with excitement, filled with anticipation. She should have run away screaming. And even more, as we'll see, Adam should have stepped forward to speak against the serpent's contradiction. Satan cast God in an ugly light. The threat of death, he intimates, was nothing more than a scare tactic of God's to keep Adam and Eve in their place. God is repressive. God is obviously jealous that they might ascend too high. If you know the backstory regarding Satan, formerly known as Lucifer, you can see the parallelism here. Well, Satan attacked the immeasurable goods of creation. 
and their rulership over it. To say nothing of the gift of Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam. What a slur on God's character. Satan's lie also held out the lure of moral autonomy. Eve could become equal with God. She would make the rules. She would do it her way. Can't you hear Frank Sinatra? I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way. Oh, but there would be no standing tall that day. Let's look at their descent. First Eve. Verse 6, back to the NLT. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. What's happening here? The book of James offers some insight. It says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Eve is enticed and dragged away. Look at this from pastor, uh, theologian, martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote, With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation to appease desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. That's from his book, Temptation. Let's look at six again. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Such a simple phrase. Eight to ten words, depending on your translation. She took some of the fruit and ate it. We, we don't know what the fruit was. Most of the descriptions you see are of an apple, but that's probably not accurate. I'm wishing it was something more like a pomegranate or an orange. Something she would have to peel, maybe give her some time to think about what she was about to do. Regardless, Moses expresses no consternation, no shock here. He simply records what took place with no flourish. There's no shock, there's no alarm which should have accompanied this action. One commentary says, on the contrary, the unthinkable and terrible is described as simply and unsens unsensationally as possible. 
Humanly speaking, it seems so natural and rather undramatic, but it was cosmic. It was eternal. John Milton described us in his Paradise Lost. Earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then, give, then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Here's what's most startling to me. I, I mean, just absolutely stupefying. Adam was with her. He was with her. We don't know how long. Was he there before the snake left? It's possible. The, the you in verses 1 through 5 is plural, implying Adam's presence, perhaps. We just can't be sure. In any case, the Apostle Paul in First Timothy would later insist that Adam was not deceived the way that Eve was. Again, Hughes says, Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open, without hesitation. His sin was loaded with self-interest, and he watched Eve take the fruit and nothing happened to her. He sinned willfully, assuming there would be no consequences. Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. The result, he says, was seismic. Again, John Milton. Earth was shaken to her core, seeming in agony again, and, and nature gave a second groan. The sky lowered, thunder grumbled, and some sad drops wept at the commission of original sin. Innocence and intimacy are lost. Gone is their transparent character and their harmony with each other and with God. Instead, sin ushered in guilt. It ushered in estrangement. It was death. What we see, though, that Satan... What he told them was true, half true anyway, and he specializes in half-truths. No, Adam and Eve did not die that day, at least not in the way we usually think of it. So what was this death? French theologian Henri Blocher explains, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be. But in biblical terms, it means to cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence, but nevertheless an existence. Adam and Eve's existence is now one of death. Sin has immediately penetrated every fiber down to their molecular level, every aspect of who they are. They are at once utterly Sinful. Ephesians 2 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin. Adam and Eve's communion with God underwent death, and they would eventually go to earthly graves. Yes, their eyes were opened, but grotesquely. They saw evil, and they saw themselves. Hughes says that guilt and fear gripped their hearts. Now they would have to labor. God. They would have to labor to love God and each other. 
Let's continue. Verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Adam and Eve hear God approaching and where before the sound used to fill them with joy, now they are overcome with dread. So sensing their fig leaves aren't enough, they hide among the trees the very ones God provided for them. But what a sad delusion to imagine that it's possible to hide from God. Psalm 139 says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. We cannot hide from God. People may think they can hide their sins from Him, but eventually we will be exposed. Romans 2 says, the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Now, how you read the dialogue between God and Adam and Eve depends on how you view God. Is He only nice, long-suffering, or is He angry and is He cruel? Moses doesn't give any sense of the tone here in God's voice. But I believe it is strained. Yes, God is merciful. He is slow to get angry, but nothing angers him more than sin, and we'll talk about why. So God's where are you can sound different depending on how accurate your view of him is. The question you see is not an indictment. It isn't accusing. I believe that God is, is drawing Adam out, to come out of hiding. There is, there is grace in the question itself, because God knew where Adam was. How then does Adam respond? Certainly not with admission. Verse 10, Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid, because I was naked. Adam expresses his fear and shame Hughes tells us the only thing he truly confessed to was a feeling, that is, fear. He knew he had disobeyed, but in his new self-focused state, he was more concerned with how he felt than about his sin against God. This focusing on self, this shrinking away from God is a mark of our fallen condition. Romans 3 says that no one seeks after God. Another indication involves shifting the blame, which is what Adam and Eve do. First, Adam blames Eve. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Remember Adam's ecstasy a moment ago? This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he had exclaimed. Hughes describes it well. He says, she was at once his sister, his daughter, and his one flesh wife. Such a helper, such intimacy, such oneness, such joy. She was his human universe, but now she gave me the fruit and I ate it. What infamous treachery. It's her fault, God. Don't blame me. Adam was so calculated and so cold, 
so long marital bliss. Not only does Adam blame his bride, but he also blames God. You're the one who gave her to me, he accuses. Like his new father, Satan, Adam is here implying that a better God would not have given him Eve. Blasphemous. Surely disappointed with Adam sidestepping and his blame shifting, God then turns to Eve. And imagine the Eve here. She's just been double-crossed. She's been betrayed by the love of her life. She's at first despondent, I imagine, and then angry, resentful. Finally, she resorts to self-preservation. She, like Adam, could have admitted her guilt, but she doesn't. She blames the snake. In verse 13, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And we are so much like our first parents. We too blame things like our circumstances, our passions, our appetites. We say things like, God made me this way, I can't help it. We play the victim, sometimes even blaming God like Adam did. I am myself so much like Adam that I probably would have taken it a step further. Not only would I have blamed God for the woman... I probably would have blamed him or mentioned something about why he put the tree there in the first place. Which begs the question, why did he? Why even make that tree? Why put two trees in the middle of the garden? Why not just the one, the good one? Well, we certainly can't get into it now, but I think it has something to do with, with free will. How God didn't want to create robots forced to love him. Anyway, as you saw in, in the, the song, our natural bent is to blame others, and it is also to blame God. So when it comes to my own sin, I, I need to realize that at first, I am, a, I am alone the one to blame. It is my fault. No one else's. But I also need to keep in mind a second thing. Jesus has taken that blame for my sin. So it's his fault. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? Indeed it is. More rightly said, we are to rest all our blame on Christ. What do I mean by this? Romans 5 says, The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who in himself, Jesus deserved no blame, he says, it's my fault. Pass the blame to me. This is what we saw last week when, when we sort of fast-forwarded to the cross Jesus taking the blame for the sin of all humanity. First Peter 2 says that Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. We're going to stop here in Genesis 3. We don't, we don't have time to go into the curses and judgments. So just allow me to say that as a result of their sin, relationships would not be the same.
work would not be the same. The earth itself, what was once marvelous, dazzling, and grand, would not be the same. Adam and Eve would strive with one another and with God. But there is also grace. There is grace. Because relationships won't satisfy, we will be driven to seek God. Because work and accomplishments and achievements will not satisfy, we will be driven to pursue God. In fact, what we seek fulfillment in outside of God will be a perpetual source of pain. But it's really an ache for the presence of God, which the man and the woman were banished from. We're going to close our time in a moment by returning to the Jesus Storybook Bible. But before we do that, I need to touch on the legacy of sin. Uh, See, technically, I was supposed to cover the first nine chapters of Genesis. We have six more to go, and unless you want to break for lunch and get back to it, (laughs) that's not going to happen. So let me say briefly that what we see in Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, is the legacy of sin that they inherited. But there is grace in the story, too. Grace for Cain, who deserved death. Then jump forward hundreds of years to Noah. Again, what we see is unbridled sin to the point that in one of the saddest passages of Scripture, God regrets his whole creation project, at least the humans he placed on earth. Genesis 6-6 says, The Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. We see God's wrath against sinful, wicked people, the book of Romans tells us, people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Sin so angers God because of what it does to us, because it destroyed his masterpiece in Eden, and it continues to do so. Yes, we see God's anger, but we also see grace in the story of Noah and the flood, as well as a covenant, which John Carver is going to speak about next week. Romans 2, 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? Just as God was kind and patient with Adam, so he is with us. Just as he provided clothes for Adam and his wife, so he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. And this is where the gooder comes in. The promise of Scripture is that God is going to make it all good again, even better than before. We skipped over it, but nestled there in God's curse of Satan, there, there lay the first prophecy concerning Christ, a promise that God will answer the problem of sin, and He answers the problem overwhelmingly in Jesus as we looked at last week. Jesus defeated the power of sin and death through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Praise God. 